What a blessing to see all these kids going back there, even when you have to dodge them. It's uh, such a joy to see their little hearts and coming through on their faces. And, you know, some of them don't have a clue what they're learning back there, <laughs> just as oblivious uh, as you can be. And some of them are getting it. And it's just, it's fun to watch kids progress, you know, as they uh, are just growing up in an atmosphere of the things of God, even if they're not understanding everything they're hearing, or even a large percentage of what they're hearing, that they're growing up breathing the air of the glory of God, and the praises of God, and the seriousness of God's Word, and all of that. What a joy to, to see these kids, and just to give God thanks for the kids that He has given us as parents, and as a church. What a trust it is, what a stewardship it is, We ask for God's help as we steward these blessings, these little souls. If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bible to Exodus 17, verses 8 to 16. That's where we'll be today as we go through the book of Exodus. If you're visiting with us this morning, it is our uh, habit to go through books of the Bible uh, as we expositionally work through uh, either books or large passages. We went through the Sermon on the Mount. We went through the passage on the family in Ephesians. So, Uh, Not always entire books, but typically books of the Bible. And before Exodus, we were in Romans. And then before that, we were in Genesis. And now we are in Exodus chapter 17. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at Israel's grumbling and God's grace. So we have both of those. And we're holding those together as we go through uh, that portion of Exodus from 15 to 17. We have They're grumbling in God's grace. The Israelites grumble and Yahweh gives. It's a a little bit surprising when you come to it. Just the the sheer patience and grace of God with his people. They protest and God protects. He protects his people from thirst and then from hunger. And then we see from thirst again. He is providing what they need. He's protecting them. Their well-being, he's protecting their longevity. He's protecting The glory of his name among his people. He is protecting us as he protects the line to Christ. As he protects the line to the hope of the Gentiles. Jesus is the hope of the nations. He's the hope of the Gentiles as Paul calls him in Romans. And we know that we're only here this morning because of what God did in the past. We take that for granted. You know, this is our story Not just some distant story uh, uh, detached from us, but this is our story. And the only reason we're here this morning praising the God of Israel, the God of this ancient monotheistic people, uh, the only reason that's happening is because of God's plan, God's story, God's working, even in this wilderness experience of Israel. He protects his people. He provides for them. We saw that at Marah and then at Elam. And then the wilderness of Sin, and then at Rephidim, these strange names. These are places marked by God's provision, marked by God's protection, by God's grace. And as we've seen God's response to the grumbling, we've been given deeper insight into the fatherly disposition and care of the Lord. And so, you know, I hope, my prayer for us is that we've really taken that in. We're coming to see more about God's character. We're coming to see how it is that God relates to his people. How he cares for us. Even when we fail. Even when we fall far, far 
short. He is our heavenly Father. And it gives us a model, too, for us earthly fathers, those who seek to father our children in the way that the heavenly Father fathers us. We see here the perfect picture of God's tender, loving, gracious, and patient care. Instead of prayer for help, as we think about the Israelites, instead of prayer for help that is filled with gratitude and trust, they test God with these words from verse 7. We read them last week, as as appalling as they are. Verse 7, is the Lord among us or not? It's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. If, If you were reading through Exodus quickly, you would get to that pretty quickly after the plagues. You would get there and you would just be, be flabbergasted that that question could be asked. After all that God has done, after all of his might and miracles, the question when they are thirsty, and by the way, the last time they were thirsty, God provided twice, transforming the water and then bringing them to a spring And in the midst of all of that, is the Lord among us or not? While chewing on heavenly bread. Isn't that like us? While we are feasting on God's provisions and blessings, we question and doubt his presence and his goodness. Is the Lord among us or not? Life is filled with difficulties. We all know that. And we learn in the Bible that God tests his people Through trials, the Lord refines and grows us, and he reveals to us what's in our hearts. He shows us. He gives us a true view of ourselves. So what kind of response does the Lord call us to when those trials come? So we know that they will come. Some of us even right now experiencing heavy trials. We know that they have come, and they will ultimately culminate in the trial of death as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So at the very least, that trial is coming for all of us, unless Jesus returns beforehand. So what kind of response does he call us to? Well, the Israelites show us what we are not to do. Uh, They show us what is not supposed to happen. Grumbling, quarreling, aggression towards others, testing God. And the reason that we know that we are meant to take all of that very heavy from this passage is because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He goes through and describes what happened in the wilderness different times. He goes through and explains what the Israelites did, the sins they committed. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, now these things took place As examples for us. Who's the us? Paul's readers. Who's the us? Those who've come into Christ. And here Paul is writing to the Corinthians. Gentiles. Like us. What we are reading. These things took place as examples for us. And then he says this. In order that we might not desire evil as they did. So what we're reading about the Israelites and all that grumbling and all that quarreling, it comes from evil desires in their hearts. It's springing up, as James says, as Paul tells us, as we find throughout Scripture, springing up from the desires in their hearts. We are meant to read these things with a heavy conscience, recognizing that these are examples for us not to follow. 
Not to say just, oh, well, I do that too, and, and uh, the Lord is with me, he's gracious, and he's patient. Yes, we want to take note of that. But we are meant to read this as instruction, as an example. We are meant to read this and to flee and to go the other way. Verse 11, they were written down for our instruction. So be instructed away from this sin, away from this wickedness towards the Lord. So what is the alternative? What is the towards the Lord? If this is where we want to turn, what we want to turn away from, what are we turning towards as we take in these bad examples? And I think on a basic level, it is what Paul puts before us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Now, I guarantee you, if I just said Philippians 4, 6, some percentage, and probably a sizable percentage within the church would start to recite that. This is a memory verse, one that probably has come across all of our radars at some point. Some of us have it memorized, but Philippians 4, 6, this is the alternative, I think. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So, no drink, anxious, sin. No food, anxious, sin. Paul says, do not be anxious, but pray to God when you need help. Pray to God when there's lack. Pray to God when there's hurt. Pray to God when there's pain and suffering. Pray but pray with thanksgiving. He doesn't just say, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. You would think, in talking with people sometimes, you would think that that part is just not memorized. It's like, okay, anxious. Pray to God for him to show up. But where is the thanksgiving? Where is the gratitude this is trusting prayer that is filled with gratitude. It forces us to go back. It forces us to go back into the past and to piece together all the ways that God has showed up for us, that God has been present with us, that God has helped us in times of need, like the one we're facing right now. This is the alternative to the grumbling of the Israelites, trusting prayer filled with gratitude. Likewise, James tells us that trials are to be met with joy. There was no joy in these wilderness experiences. We certainly are not reading accounts of joy, and yet James tells us in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So in other words, what we're told by James to do is to see beyond the physical need to the spiritual gain. So not only when we face these things do we pray to God with gratitude, remembering the past, but we also see beyond the physical need and the physical hurt, and we consider what the Lord is doing. And as we saw with the Israelites, he was testing his people. He's growing and refining and making stronger. 
And that is what the Lord is doing to us. That's what the Lord is doing in your life right now as you undergo these trials, whatever they might be. He is strengthening. He is calling us to see beyond the physical need to the spiritual gain and to in that rejoice. It's one of the greatest evangelistic tools that the Christian has in the toolbox is for unbelievers to see us rejoicing through trials. This is one of the major ways that the glory of God shines in the world. This is one of the major ways the glory of God shines in your home. As your children, as our children see us face trials, uncomfortable things, stressful things, and we rejoice. What a witness to the reality of the gospel. What a witness to the power of the Spirit. What a witness to the glory of Christ. Today, in the latter part of chapter 17, we switch gears a little bit. We move from grumbling to battle. From grumbling to battle. But we are still very much focused on God's protection and power. So we haven't changed the big idea. The big idea is God leads his people through the wilderness, is that he is with them, he's protecting them, and he is showing them his power. But the scene here is an attack. The Israelites are attacked by an aggressor, as we read about earlier, the Amalekites. So the title for the sermon this morning is The First Battle, and you'll see that up on the screen there, The First Battle. And as I said, it's Exodus 17, verses 8 to 16. So if you'll go ahead and stand with me, let's read God's word together. Thankfully for Ken, this is the Amalekites, not the Kenites, what we're about, we're about to read here. So chapter 17, verses 8 to 16, this is the word of the Lord. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar. And called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and seek God's grace, seek God's help for this time of instruction from his word. Father, we bow before you, the holy God. 
our Heavenly Father, our tender, caring, patient, gracious, merciful Heavenly Father. You tell us that the Spirit cries out within us, Abba, Father, Daddy. The most intimate language showing the picture of a small child calling out to his or her father. Lord, we praise you that you have made us your children in this way and that we can come before you, be instructed by you. Lord, that you are gracious enough not to just let us stay in our sins, but God, you call us constantly, continually from your word to flee from evil, to set our hope on Christ and to run to Christ, to look to Christ Lord, help us. We, moment by moment, are so desperately in need of you to fight for us. Lord, we have no resources on our own to accomplish this work of the Christian life. We need you every moment. Lord, I pray right now for any in our congregation going through a heavy trial Right now, Father, I pray that these passages would just lift up their souls, Lord, and all of our souls. As, Lord, we recognize this life is filled with trials. And, Lord, we know that we will suffer persecutions of various kinds. And we are tempted in various ways. Lord, we thank you that you give us passages like this just to remind us of what we ought not to do. To instruct us. To remind us of your fatherly care and your grace when we fail to remind us of your means and your might so that we may not fail. Lord, just to pull us toward yourself, we thank you. We pray now that you would make this sermon clear. Lord, that you would speak into each of our hearts with applications that would abound by your spirit for each of us, Lord, as the meaning of your word is presented. Father, we love you and we thank you for loving us first. And we know we would have no heart for you, God. No desire for your glory. No appreciation of your great name. We would have no desire whatsoever to even be here with Christians reading the Bible, singing to you. We would have none of that apart from your love for us before the world began. As in Christ you chose us before the world began that we might be adopted as sons, your sons. So Father, we thank you for your love and we praise you for the love that you have poured into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And with that love, we pray now, though imperfect, that we would direct it to you and to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're going to look at two things as we study this passage, as we divide the text up into two parts. So the first is the victory, verses 8 to 13, and then secondly, the vengeance, verses 14 to 16, both of those on the part of the Lord. So it is the Lord's victory and the Lord's vengeance. So let's look again at the Lord's victory, verses 8 to 13. I'm going to read those verses again as we carefully take them in. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill 
with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now is the time for Israel to face war. This is their first battle. Now, at this point, you might remember something we read back in chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 17. This is when the exodus first occurred. And this is what it says there. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by, by way of the land of the Philistines. So directly north, God did not lead them that way. Although that was near. Why did God not lead them that way? Well, we know, of course, God had many reasons for not leading them that way. He was going to part the sea and all of that. But we're given this reason here. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Well, we know. What we've seen is every time they face any kind of trial, they want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back to slavery. They want to go back to oppression, which makes no sense. Of course, It's irrational, but they want to go back to Egypt. And so the Lord says, lest they do that, right when he brings them out, he will not bring them into battle. The people were not ready to see see war when they first left Egypt, but now they are. In God's providence and wisdom, now they are ready to face battle. And I think this tells us a couple of things. Just as we make this basic observation, here we have the first battle. And if you were to rewind, you see that God led them a different way because they weren't ready. So two observations. First, God brings situations into our lives as he sees fit. He is entirely sovereign over everything we have to pass through. If you think of life as moving down a hallway and then passing in from room to room to room. And life, just a series of many different rooms. What we need to understand this morning is that God is sovereign over each of those rooms. And more specifically, God is sovereign over our placement in each of those rooms. He knows what we need and what we are ready to face And so here's the thing. We may come up against a situation and think, there's no way I could face this. But with the Lord's help, we can. Or we wouldn't be in it. We wouldn't be walking through that room. So we see that God brings us through the various things of life. And when we face those, we have what it takes And we must trust in him. Second, God has been working in the midst of all this grumbling. Now this is interesting. As as you're reading through this and you think about what's going on, all of a sudden now, the people 
are ready according to the Lord's providence, according to his sovereignty. The people are ready for war in a way that they previously weren't ready for war. Now they are ready for war. Apparently, despite the poor response of the Israelites, God's strengthening had still taken place. In other words, over the last few chapters, all we've read is Israelite failure. Uh, They've fallen on their faces time and time again. And yet what we are meant to understand is that in the midst of all of that, even in their failures, God is strengthening, strengthening them and preparing them. He's readying them for this. Something that they were not ready for before. And that tells us something that I think we need to be encouraged about. Even when we fail the tests, right? We think about tests and we think about we fail or we pass. And there's sort of nuance to that in terms of the various layers and levels and so forth. But we recognize that even when we fail the tests, and I don't think anyone could say that these tests that have come to Israel have been passed, even when we fail, God is still gracious to use those things to grow us. Now notice, I didn't say that God is still gracious with us and patient with us. That's what we've said already. What we're meant to add to that detail now is this fact that God is so gracious that even when we fail, he still makes use. He still makes good use of those things for our good. To strengthen us. To make us more ready. To make us more prepared For all that we will face. So what are the circumstances of this battle? Well, the aggressor is Amalek or the Amalekites. Amalek here being a stand-in for the people. Just as Israel is a stand-in for the Israelites. Here we have Amalek as a stand-in for the Amalekites. This goes back to Esau in Genesis chapter 36. Verses 15 to 16 there in the genealogy of Esau. And I remember uh, when we were going through Genesis preaching through, I thought that the genealogy of Esau was going to be our first sermon here in this new building. And I thought, well, if that's how it works out, that's how it works out. It didn't work out that way. Instead, we got Judah and Tamar, which, you know, similar, I suppose. But uh, if we go back to that chapter, Genesis 36, we read that Amalek is a grandson of Esau. A grandson of Esau through his firstborn son, Eliphaz. So that's who the Amalekites are. They, they've grown over the years, distant cousins of the Israelites. And here they are, the aggressor against God's people. With no provocation, they attack the Israelites. And we get more description of this in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 to 18 of, of this attack. Let me read that to you. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way. And listen to the circumstances of this attack from Amalek. When you were faint and weary. Well, why? Why are the Israelites faint and weary? Well, they they haven't had a lot of food. They haven't had a lot of water. There there have been these trials that they have faced. God's provided, but they are at this point weakened. They are faint and weary. And it goes on to say, and they cut off your tail. Of course, you can imagine 2 to 2.5 million people moving through. And you have those in the back straggling. 
It says they cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. You know what that tells us is that here the Israelites are and the Amalekites come in from the rear. Somehow they recognize weakness and they begin to sort of chop off the, those lagging in the back. The weakest, the slowest, perhaps the older folks, children, cutting off the tail their attack is described this way in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 2. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way. So here's a picture of the Israelites moving through, and the Amalekites are opposing them or standing against them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. So what is Israel to do? Well, here we read that Moses, their leader, springs into action. First, an order is given to a man named Joshua. This is the first mention of Joshua. So the first time he's introduced, of course, by the time that this would have been written, Joshua was exceedingly well-known among the people, so there was no need to say much about him. We get further description of Joshua as the first five books of the Bible unfold, but this is the first mention of this figure in the Bible. This is the one who will ultimately lead the Israelites into the promised land. Remember, the Exodus is about God leading his people out of Egypt. But then the second part of that is him leading his people into the promised land. Joshua will take that role, whereas Moses took the former role. We are told later in chapter 24, verse 13, that he is Moses' assistant who accompanies him on Mount Sinai. So a younger assistant to Moses, half his age who is there helping Moses as he relates to the Lord. And Moses' order to Joshua is to select men and go fight. And he tells him that on the next day when the battle begins, he will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in his hand. Now I imagine if Moses were talking to Joshua and told him uh, to do this without that last part, that Joshua would have obeyed Moses. But I think it is this last part that Joshua most needs to hear with the staff of God in his hand. Moses will be behind him, above him, with the staff of Yahweh. The picture is of Joshua going out to battle, and he can turn around and he can look up, and there's Moses, but most importantly, there is the staff of Yahweh in Moses' hand. So verse 10 says, Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. And after giving the order to Joshua, Moses ascends the hill with Aaron and a man named Hur. Now Hur, we'll come back to this individual later. We'll read more about him. It appears that his grandson, Bazalel, was the one who was responsible for constructing the tabernacle. But these are the two companions and helpers to Moses. Aaron, we've already been introduced to him. He's the brother of Moses and Hur. A tradition through Josephus says that Hur actually was Miriam's husband. And so maybe this is Moses' brother-in-law. And then something interesting happens. We're told that when Moses holds up the staff, the Israelites are winning. It's high. It's lifted up. It's exalted. It's above Moses' head. When that happens, they're winning. Things are going well on the battlefield. But when his hands with the staff are lowered, 
the Israelites start losing. And you think of sort of two armies clashing and sort of the, the give and take. There's a lot of movement forward when the staff is up and a lot of movement backwards when the staff is down. Everything is dependent on the staff. Everything dependent on the staff of Yahweh. This is the symbol of God's presence and power. Just like in the plagues, chapter 9, verse 23, it says this, Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. Uh, so we read, as we were working through the plagues, remember at the, at the burning bush, when God speaks to Moses at the burning bush, he tells him, and, and then subsequently he tells him, remember the staff. Take the staff. Use the staff. Moses is not to go out there and just be this individual who puts his own hands without the staff into the air as though he's the one who is doing these great works. It is the Lord who is doing them. Moses must never forget that. Pharaoh must never forget that. The Israelites, the Egyptians, all must see that the power is connected to the staff. We saw that with the plagues. And this is precisely what we saw with the culmination of the plagues in the Red Sea. Chapter 14, verse 16. The Lord says this to Moses. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Now, it's interesting here because the Lord tells Moses to divide the sea. And so who divided the sea? Well, ultimately, it was the Lord who divided the sea, but the command to divide the sea is given to Moses. By what means? The staff of Yahweh. So a solution to this problem of Moses' weary arms if you've ever tried to hold your arms up for long, you know that you think you can do it for a while, but of course it doesn't take long before they begin to shake and then fall. And the solution to this problem is found in a stone and Moses' two friends. So he sits on the stone and Aaron and Hur hold up his hands. He's given a seat so that he can rest. And then one is on one side and the other is on the other side, holding up Moses' hands, holding up Moses' arms so that the staff will not falter. The end result is what we read in verses 12 to 13. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So the picture is back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Then finally they get this stone in place. Aaron on one side, her on the other. The staff is elevated and it's only victory for the Israelites at that point. So what is going on here? What are we to take from this portion of this passage? First, most basically, we need to understand that this is God's victory. This is God's victory because it is dependent on God's staff. And as we just talked about, the placement of the staff determines the outcome. It is not Moses up on the hill. It is not Joshua with his military skill 
and bravery on the battlefield. It is not the fighters who win the battle. It is Yahweh. And everything about this story is meant to point to that great truth. It is Yahweh who wins. What they must know as they move into the promised land is that the Lord will fight for them. They are going up against entrenched people. They're going to go up against city walls like the walls of Jericho. They're going to go up against people who've had far more, far much more military training than they've ever had. And what they are meant to remember, what they are meant to know at the deepest level is that God will fight for his people. God will have victory And for us this morning, I think it reminds us of this great truth that only Yahweh can win our battles. He's the only one. And we have a lot of battles in this life. Only Yahweh can win them. Ephesians 6.10 says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And we've seen this. We've seen times when we are strong in our own might, or so we think. We recognize times when we look to our own resources, our own intelligence, our own skills and experience, and we begin to rely on ourselves. But we know from Ephesians 6 that the only way we're going to fight Satan is if we are strong in his might, if we are strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. But... And this is important. Like Joshua, we still have to put on the armor and go out to fight. So think about it. It's not just Moses who goes up on the hill and he holds up the staff and God sends down a blast from heaven and wipes out the Amalekites and there's no more war and there's no more battle. There's no need to even go out to fight. That's not what we read here. What we see here is that Joshua must go out to fight. He must choose men who are willing and able to go out to fight, and they must actually engage in combat with some losing and some winning. Like Joshua, we still have to put on the armor and go out to fight and go out to wrestle against spiritual forces, as Paul says in Ephesians 6. And and I think that's probably uh, the problem many times is that we passively wait for God to drop his victory in our laps. We say things like this, God, when am I going to have victory over this thing, this temptation, this sin? When am I going to get past this thing? And we just passively sit and we're waiting for God to send a blast from heaven to wipe out the Amalekites. What the Lord is saying is, Joshua's got to go out to battle. The fighters have to go to the field. There will be win and losing, but we have to go out to fight. Victory is the Lord's, and it must be fought in his might, but it must be fought by those who trust in the Lord. So that's the first thing. I think we are to take away from this. Second, notice Moses' posture and his companions. Many have detected here a reference to prayer. And we're not told specifically here that prayer is what's in view. So uh, I think we probably could take that further than the text would allow. 
Uh, But many interpreters have detected here some reference to prayer. Moses interceding for his people. And we see Moses as a mediator, as an intercessor throughout these narratives in the Pentateuch. Moses praying to the Lord on behalf of his people. A picture of Christ as he intercedes for his people. His heart is directed to the Lord as he holds up that staff, as his arms and hands shake. He is directed to the God of Israel. He is trusting in the Lord's might, undoubtedly communing with his God on behalf of his people. He is trusting in the Lord's power. Every time Moses held up that staff, He needed to believe that the Lord would act. But none of this that Moses is doing can be done alone. Why? Because Moses is a mere man. You know, and that's the problem is uh, Moses could be elevated. He could be put up so high on a pedestal. It's important for us and anyone who would read the narrative to see Moses the shepherd in Midian. Right? This is the guy who fled. This is the no-name person who really has no homeland who really has no people, he's sort of straddling between three different people, there shepherding sheep that are not even his own, and the Lord comes to him. Who is Moses? Who is Moses? And if we ask that question, then we ask the same question of ourselves. Who is any of us? What power do we have? Moses needs help. He's a mere man. He needs support. He needs strengthening from his brothers. And we're getting a picture of that here, the need for one another. The need that we have, uh, even even in a situation like Moses, where he's he's the leader of the people. And even for you, if you're leading a ministry or you're leading a gospel community group, leading God's people in any way, we need the support of one another. You know, at the end of this month, we're going to have a men's retreat. I just want to take this opportunity to just invite all of you men who, if you haven't signed up for that, I pray that you will. This is the sort of time where we get a Moses, Aaron, and her experience together. And it builds those relationships. And we recognize the need as we travel through the Christian life that we need one another. Not a single one of us is strong enough to go at it alone. We need our brothers. We need our brothers and sisters. So that's the victory, the Lord's victory, verses 8 to 13. And now as we finish up, we come to the last few verses, the vengeance. So look with me at verses 14 to 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The Lord has given his people victory over their enemies. He has just given his people victory over their aggressors. But a simple defeat is not the end of the story. 
It, it, the, the narrative doesn't end in verse 13 and then go on to the next passage where uh, Moses will see his father-in-law Jethro and Jethro will give him some great advice to help him lead the people. That's where we're going in chapter 18 as we near Mount Sinai. But the narrative of this battle with the Amalekites doesn't end here. It doesn't end with victory. It doesn't end with the Amalekites being defeated. The Lord will punish the Amalekites for what they have done. This is not just a momentary defeat, but they will suffer punishment, judgment from the Lord because of their sin. The fundamental problem with their actions is mentioned at the end of Deuteronomy 25, verse 19. Let me read that again to you, but I want you to notice the very last clause. He attacked you, speaking of Amalek, he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you. And then here's what it says. This is important. And he did not fear God. And he did not fear God. Remember what the Israelites sang after the parting of the Red Sea. They came through the Red Sea. There was no complaining at that point. Absolutely nothing to complain about. And by the way, of course we're not complaining when there's nothing to complain about. Uh, You know, it's in times that we go through life and things are just cheery and great and happy. And we tend to take our our spiritual temperature during those times. Take the spiritual temperature down in the depth of the valley. But after coming through the Red Sea, they said this in chapter 15, verses 14 to 15. The peoples have heard Speaking of what will follow, the peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. So the Israelites, after they come through the Red Sea, they praise God for the fact that God is going to make a path for them. He is going to put terror in the hearts of all the peoples. But despite All the glory and power that Yahweh has demonstrated in these mighty deeds, these great acts of judgment, despite all of that, the Amalekites still attack Israel. And if we see this picture, I think we're meant to understand that it is like Pharaoh rushing into the sea. It is like Pharaoh after the first plague and then going toward the second plague and after the second going toward the third and every subsequent plague plague. There's a hardening of the heart, a turning away from the obvious, a turning away from God's glory, a turning away from the fear of the Lord. And even when the sea parts, he runs, or his army runs right into it. The same is true here. All that God has done, the terror that God has put into uh, that God has put into their hearts, and the Amalekites still attack Israel. They still rush in to fight, and I think this just reminds us that at the root of all sin is a lack of fear of God. In Proverbs, we're told that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And the beginning of the knowledge, the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. What what knowledge do we have that's worthwhile? What wisdom for life do we have that is worthwhile if we don't fear God? 
if we don't reverence him in his glory, if we don't recognize him as the great and eternal king and judge, at the root of all sin is this lack of reverence to God, a lack of fear of the Lord. Do we treat God casually? Do we treat God flippantly? Do we casually pet our sins and let them remain? It's a lack of the fear of the Lord. So here, on account of what the Amalekites have done, we are told that because of their godless actions, they have made Yahweh their permanent enemy. One time, one choice, one decision, this people have essentially blotted themselves out. They have erased their future because of this one act of turning away from the fear of the Lord and trying to consume God's people. One act that would go with them forever. They have made the God of heaven, the Lord of the universe, their permanent enemy as a people. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Joshua and the future leaders of Israel are to recognize God's vengeance. So it is to be in the ears of Joshua. It is to be written so that it will not be forgotten. And it is to be constantly in the ears of Joshua so that he leads the people into the promised land. And as he passes on that leadership to subsequent generations, that there will always be an eye of vengeance, of punishment, of divine wrath towards The Amalekites, they are to be God's instrument of the blotting out of this people. And that makes sense of 1 Samuel 15, uh, the story of Saul. Samuel goes to Saul and gives him instructions that he is to annihilate the entire people. And we read of Saul's disobedience. He was told to completely destroy them, but he left some animals and their king Agag. And the enmity between Israel and Amalek will go all the way down to Esther with Haman. And this is interesting. Maybe you haven't studied the book of Esther. What a wonderful book. I just, the, the way that God's providence and his justice shines through so beautifully in the book of Esther. If you've never read Esther, go home today, read it. It's, it's not too long, and you can read through it fairly quickly. A beautiful book, a wonderful display of how God works in the circumstances of his people. But we have this evil character in Esther named Haman. And without this background, we just see him as a villain. A villain in a vacuum. But he's not. Haman is not a villain in a vacuum. Haman, the character who tries to destroy all of the Jews, goes back to the Amalekites. Esther chapter 3 verse 1 calls him Haman the Agagite meaning that he is a descendant of Agag, that there are Amalekites left after Saul. And we know David will fight them, and Gideon will fight them, and Hezekiah will fight them. And we go all the way down to the time of Esther, and we have Haman, the Amalekite. Haman, the Agagite, who will try to have the Jews killed, but will ultimately be hung on his own gallows. 
we're not meant to just see the isolated justice of the story of Esther. We are meant to see that God keeps his word. He keeps his word of salvation and he keeps his word of judgment. Just as sure as heaven will shine brighter than the sun for the people of God, hell will be there for those who reject the Lord. God's word of punishment stands true and will come to pass. God's word of salvation and hope is true and it will come to pass no matter how long the world waits. To commemorate God's victory and God's promise to take vengeance on the Amalekites, Moses builds an altar. And so we read this in verse 15. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. In other words, the Lord is the rallying point for his people. It's the picture of, of a symbol. We might think of it as, as a flag, but it's, it's, a, it's a signal or a pole that is held up into the air. A rallying point for the people of God. The Lord is my banner banner. He is their victor. He is their protector. He is the basis for any war they are called to fight. And the only means of victory, the Lord is our banner. In every fight, in every temptation, in every trial, in every, every difficulty, in every hardship of life, the Lord is our banner. The Lord is our rallying point. He is our refuge and fortress. He is our rock. He is all those wonderful things we read about. We rest in him because he fights for us. Finally, for verse 16, the translation of the NIV seems to fit best with the Hebrew, so I'm going to read that. The translation of verse 16 in the NIV says this, He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. In other words, by attacking Israel, it is as though the Amalekites have lifted up their hands against God himself. To attack Israel in this particular situation... To attack Israel after all that God has done, after all that he has proclaimed about his name and his power. To attack Israel despite the terror that God has put on them. To attack Israel knowing that they are God's special possession, God's special people delivered by his mighty hand. To do that is to attack the very throne of the living God. They have lifted up their hands against God himself. They have done exactly what Pharaoh did and receive a fate like Pharaoh and his army had. So as a result of their attack on the Lord, the Lord will place a permanent attack order on them. And so the last words we read here are from generation to generation. And as we leave here this morning, as we walk away from this passage, there are several things that are highlighted with these Amalekites. As we think about God's judgment on them, God's vengeance against them. The first is just basically the seriousness of sin. Yes, we recognize God's patience and his grace, but, but we can presume on his kindness. We can presume on God's grace, which is sin, which is evil. 
We can see God graciously come to us. We, we grumble or we do these various things. We sin in these various ways. And we see God graciously bear with us. We see God support us and help us. And then we begin to, to presume in our own hearts, well, you know, God must be okay with this sin. God must be okay with this. It's okay if I continue in this sin. He's lovingly moving me along. No. Sin is serious. And it brings God's judgment for those who are not his own. And God's discipline for those who are. And sometimes severe. In 1 Corinthians 11 we read that some uh, practicing the Lord's Supper in an irreverent, uncharitable way are killed by the Lord. They have become sick and some died because of the way they practiced the Lord's Supper. God's discipline can be severe, the seriousness of sin. So my plea with all of us is don't presume on the grace of God this morning. Don't leave here presuming that because God has not severely disciplined you in this repetitive sin, whatever it might be, that that God is okay with you just keeping it going. And he'll just keep delving out the tender mercies and the patience. Recognize the seriousness of sin and of God's discipline of his people. It's also a picture of final judgment. As we think about the promise that will come uh, eventually for the Amalekites, that they will be blotted out. We recognize the reality of the final judgment that we will all stand before the Lord. And guess what? Mom won't be there. Dad won't be there. Husband or wife won't be there. Your kids won't be there. All the people who think you're great and pat you on the back won't be there. Nobody will be there but you and me alone before the living God. That day is coming. It's coming for every person in this room. And for those who do not know Jesus Christ, for those who have not been washed in his blood, for those who have not been born again by his spirit, for those who have not become Christ's possession, there will be only hell, a certain eternal judgment, just as sure as the blotting out of the Amalekites. Finally, we get here a demonstration of how God protects and vindicates his people. We don't need to take vengeance on our enemies because God has all that for himself. God will take vengeance. God will protect us and he will vindicate us. He will lead us safely home, safely being understood according to his wisdom and not our own desire for comfort. He will safely lead us home. He will protect us and ultimately he will vindicate his people eternally. And listen to this, even when they grumble against him and doubt his presence. Why would God do this for his people after all they've done? Chapter 15 grumbling, chapter 16 grumbling, chapter 17 grumbling, added with quarreling and testing. All that they have done and yet God does this. Even when we grumble, even when we doubt, we have a heavenly Father who cares for us, who forgives us, 
and who calls us forward in wisdom and righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you show us in your word about your character, what you show us about your power, how you glorify yourself. Lord, guard us from sin. May we have the fear of the Lord rightly understood. And Father, we pray that we would trust in your power and not our own. Would you be with us now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Would our hearts be filled with joy and self-examination? In Jesus' name, amen.